Hello students, this is Mrs. Zelmer and this is your Mission of Jesus Christ podcast lesson for Monday, May 4th, 2020. We're focusing on the theology of St. Paul today. We're going to start this morning with a prayer. Feel pray with me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is taken from the closing prayer for morning prayer of the fourth week of Easter on Monday. Father, through the obedience of Jesus, your servant and your son, you raised up a fallen world. Free us from sin and bring us to the joy that lasts forever. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's just take a moment to pause and to remember any intentions that you're holding in your hearts today. I'm praying for you and for the needs of your family, your friends, um, and especially for um, all of you undergoing um, just difficult times with um, things that may be happening at home or family members you're concerned about or any parents or cousins or aunts or uncles or siblings um, who are frontline workers um, during COVID-19 realities. We take all of these, these prayers, we place them in the hands of Jesus, and we ask that the Holy Spirit guide our work today. We ask all these prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, everyone, today that we are going to talk about some basic themes in the theology and the soteriology of St. Paul as seen through his letters. Before we go into those themes, I want to just remind you of his backstory a little bit in case you've forgotten since last year. So we first hear of Paul, uh, who is called Saul, um, in Acts chapter 8. We hear of this because during the martyrdom of St. Stephen, um, Saul is not participating in the um, execution and martyrdom of Stephen by the throwing of stones, but he does hold the coats um, of those who kill Stephen. And it says um, in Acts 8 and then Acts 9 uh, that Saul has consented to the martyrdom and the execution of St. Stephen. So when we know of um, Saul and his first introduction, right, he's one of the greatest persecutors of the early Christians, the early followers of the way. He, in fact, um, right before his conversion, is en route to Damascus in order to round up any followers of the way who have been fleeing from Jerusalem up north to, to Damascus. Um, and the image that St. Paul at this point and have really has in his mind is of the followers of the way on, almost in the way that we would think of a virus today, which I know is ironic given that we're all in e-learning mode because of a virus, right? But um, think about how we're responding to this pandemic, right? Uh, severe social distancing measures have been taken. Um, severe hygiene measures have been taken, right? Because we don't want to let the virus get anywhere to multiply. 
This is kind of how Saul and some of the Sanhedrin think about the early followers of the way, right? They're upset at the apostles who have somehow become empowered with the Holy Spirit and will not stop preaching about Jesus Christ, right? And so more and more are being added to those followers of the way, right? So before his conversion, Saul sees uh, a good comparison, right, would be that Saul sees the followers of the way, the early Christians, right, as kind of a virus that needs to be stamped out. Um, he sees what they're doing as um, a twisting of what religious, uh, religious activity should be. But then we have that famous encounter that um, Paul has with the Lord um, in Acts chapter 9. Right? He's still called Saul at this point. He's riding en route to Damascus to arrest those followers. Um, and a light from the sky blinds him. And he hears the vo a voice calling out to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't know who this is. And so he cries out, who are you? The voice comes back and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. If you had me for Dominican spirituality last semester, you've already heard this point made. But this is where we see the theology of the church as the body of Christ. This is one of the places we see it made the most clear possible. When Saul asks Jesus, who are you? Jesus says, he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus doesn't say, I am Jesus, and please stop persecuting my friends, or I am Jesus, and stop persecuting my followers. The Lord says to Saul, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, right? You might think Saul might have replied, but I've never met you, right? Um, but that's not what happens here, right? Saul understands what Jesus is communicating that the church is Christ's body, and that when Saul is seeking out and persecuting Jesus's followers, he's actually harming and hurting Jesus himself. This theology of the church as the body of Christ is gonna circle back again and again in Paul's theology. You've already heard the term once before, but I wanted to bring it back again. For the rest of today's podcast, we're going to just work through a few themes that are really critical to understand so that you know the basics of Pauline Christology and Pauline Soteriology, okay? So first up, what we're talking about is how Paul understands Christ, but then we're also talking about, because of that, how Paul understands um, the theology of salvation. The theology of salvation is the, def is the definition for the term soteriology. Um, I'll post this online so you don't have to worry about the spelling right now, right? But soteriology, the theology of salvation, asks how are we saved, okay? This term comes from the Greek root soter, which means savior, right? So it's kind of saviorology, right? Uh, it's the branch of theology that studies salvation. Um, and why it's important to mention this right now is because for Paul, his Christology is what builds and creates and uh, makes his soteriology. Kind of like how we said um, our Christology impacts and forms our ecclesiology. 
That's how soteriology works for St. Paul, right? For St. Paul, we learn who Jesus is by what Jesus does to gain salvation for us. And we can see this um, pretty clearly because Paul has three favorite titles that he likes to use for Jesus. While the Gospels tend to refer to Jesus by name, right? We'll say, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus uh, went to the Kidron Valley. Jesus in the uh, in the house of Martha and Mary, da 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 right? But Paul more often uses these three titles to refer to Jesus. Paul uses the titles Christ, Lord, and Savior. And remember, I said that for the theology of salvation, for St. Paul, right, his the theology of salvation makes sense because we figure out what Jesus does to gain salvation for us. So these three titles, Christ, Lord, and Savior, tell us what St. Paul thinks that Jesus does for the sake of our salvation, right? So for Jews, like Paul um, is and has been, um, God alone is the Lord. God alone is Adonai. God alone is the great I am, right? So no one else but God is called the Lord, right? So we see the way that Paul thinks of Jesus and knows of Jesus as God himself, right? As the Lord. Um, So first title, Lord. Um, Then we also know for Romans of the time, the emperor, right? Caesar would have been called in human titles, would have actually been called Lord and Savior, right? In Greek, this would have been Kyrios or Soterios. Um, So Paul is understanding Jesus as the Lord, right? In that religious in that great um, end-all, be-all way, right? But this would have been a title that the Romans were using for the emperor as well. And they would have also called the emperor savior, uh, Soterios. But by calling Jesus the Lord and the savior, right? He's using Lord in the Jewish sense and savior as the, as the Romans would use it for the emperor. Uh, Paul is actually telling us Um, that Jesus is both the human and the divine Messiah. Now that we've covered those three titles that Paul so frequently uses for Jesus, Christ, Lord, and Savior, I want to talk about what it means when Paul says that we are in Christ. This phrase that, that we are in Christ is actually used over 160 times throughout the Pauline corpus, the body of letters written by um, St. Paul and his community in the New Testament, right? And this is what it means to be in Christ, okay? By Christ taking on and restoring our humanity, right? Christ um, doesn't just, the Son doesn't just kind of like come to earth in a divine form, right? Christ takes on and restores our humanity by becoming human. We are therefore drawn into his divinity. So basically the son of God becomes human for our sake, right? And heals humanity in his divinity. And because of that, all humans can then get drawn up into the divinity of Jesus, right? So we are in Christ. If you need an analogy for this, um, I've heard this one used. 
for what it means to be in Christ. It's not just like pouring water into a cup, like imagining Jesus's presence is uh, being poured into something, right? But it's rather like taking that entire cup and submerging it into a bucket of water, right? Being completely in, surrounded by, and encompassed by. Being in Christ isn't just getting Jesus added to your life, right? It's your whole life being formed over so that you become like him. If we are, as Paul has said, in Christ, one of the realities that Christ accomplishes for us, um, one of the ways the theology of salvation works, is that Christ restores the image of God in us. This is taken from um, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Right In Colossians, Paul calls Christ the image, Right, the Greek term here is icon, the image of the invisible God. And we can say that from the beginning, right, the big problem that humanity has faced is that the fall and sin has corrupted God's image in us, right? Like we are humans made in God's image and likeness. Humans are unique among all of creation. Humans are kind of the crowning jewel of God's creation. But the fall and sin have hurt and wounded the image of God in us. Um, I've heard the analogy used almost like a, um, if you imagine a picture or a portrait, right, that's gotten damaged or deteriorated. It's still there, right, but it's been wounded or stained, right? So Christ, by taking on human form, restores our image. And then by being conformed, right, formed with the image of Christ, we are saved um, from the reality of the fall. We're saved from destruction and we are, uh, the gates of eternal life are opened and made possible for us. So if we are truly in Christ and Christ's image is being restored in us, God's hope for humanity is being restored because of all that Jesus has done, um, we can now talk about one of the key phrases in all of Pauline theology. This comes from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. The phrase is salvation by grace through faith. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The, the theology of salvation by grace through faith. I know that sounds like just a couple of words strung together, but I'm going to explain now why this is one of the key points of Paul's entire theology. Right. So the basic point here is that we can't restore the fallen or damaged or hurt image of God in us by our own works. The wounds in humanity are too deep for us to fix on our own. We can't climb up to heaven on our own steam. Following the Mosaic law, uh, as Paul says, has not been enough. Right. So the restoration of the hurt or corrupted image, um, of, of God in us, right, comes as an unearned gift that we can accept in faith, right? The term grace can be defined as an unearned, freely given gift from God, right? So I'll say that one more time. Grace can be defined as an unearned, freely given gift from God, right? Um, so that comes about, so salvation comes about by grace. So salvation, we are saved, by that unmerited, freely given gift from God through faith, 
right? And St. Paul says um, in Ephesians that even faith itself is a gift, right? And we are called to, in Catholic theology, to cooperate with grace, to be formed into, um, into anew the image of God. And last up, now that we've kind of uh, threaded this theme of what Christ has done for us, um, we're going to talk about the image that Paul uses of Christ as the new Adam. He talks about this in the letter to the Romans, chapter 5. In short, um, the children of Adam, right, the human race after our first parents, are under the reality of the curse of sin and death. Right? We know these sad realities. Um, death is inescapable. And sin seems part and parcel of the human condition after the fall. Right? But this has not been God's original call. This is not God's original desire for humanity. Right? So Paul says that humanity is under that curse of sin and death. And in the crucifixion, in his Paschal mystery, Christ becomes the reality of that curse for us. Right? St. Paul says this. He says, Our corrupted image, the image of God that's been hurt, has been nailed to the cross with Christ. And through Christ's resurrection, the image of God in humanity is renewed and restored. So I'll say that one more time, right? Since Christ has become human, so God has become human for us, and we are called to now become more like Christ, right? We are called to share in his divinity, to be one with the Father. Um, through the crucifixion, humanity's hurts, Humanity's corruption has been nailed to the cross with Christ who took on human nature. And through Christ's resurrection, the image of God in humanity has been renewed and restored, right? Uh, Christ returned from the dead by the, to the glory of the Father. Um, and in doing so, in the unity of his humanity and his divinity, has renewed and restored what it means to be human, right? He has once and for all defeated the hurt and the reality of the fall. Um, so when we're talking about the theology of salvation, right, these basic themes that we've kind of run through in this podcast, right, um, these titles of Jesus as Lord, Savior, and Christ, understanding what it means to be in Christ, restoring the image of God in us, how that salvation comes by grace, not merited as a gift of faith, right, um, and Christ becoming the curse for us, Christ as the new Adam, right, uh, Whereas our first parents rejected God and God's call for humanity, Christ as in his humanity, sorry, Christ in his humanity um, does what the first Adam did not do, right? So just as we would say Jesus is the new Moses, right? We can also call him the new Adam, right? Um, Because whereas the first Adam fell, uh, the new Adam brings life and resurrection for us all. everyone. I know that was a little bit longer than I usually like to make our podcasts. Thanks for sticking with this. Now I'd like you to go take your five question listening check. You can use your notes on it. Good work today and we'll see you tomorrow.